Chapter 8 The Test, in which we examine the climactic story of the sacrifice of Isaac to find out what it means to love God when life falls apart. Genesis 22, verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Key lesson Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we expect God to be good. We believe God will provide, especially in moments when life falls apart. Nina and Nature Valley Granola Bars. In my second year of teaching high school, I met Nina. Nina was one of the students in my 11th grade American literature class. She was a tiny Latina girl, five foot nothing, pretty and quiet. One morning, probably on the fourth or fifth week of class, I walked into my room, juggling my books and my papers. I put it all down on my desk when one of my colleagues peeked his head in my classroom. I went out in the hallway to chat with him, and the students started filing in. And one of the students was Nina, who came into my classroom with her friends. After I was done chatting, I went back over to my desk where I had placed all my things, including something I had planned to eat for breakfast. It was a Nature Valley granola bar, plain, in the green, crunchy packaging. I went over to my desk to get it, but it wasn't there. And I thought to myself, oh, no, it has fallen on the floor. I don't like it when the granola bars fall on the floor because then the twin bars break. And I like to remove the individual bars cleanly from the package in one smooth motion and then take that delicious plank of honey crispness and wood chipper that thing in one fell swoop. No, 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 no. But the bar wasn't there. So I looked on the floor around my desk and the granola bar was not there either. And then I looked up and there was Nina eating a Nature Valley granola bar, which she did not have before. And I thought to myself, to quote the inimitable Spanish teacher, Senor Chang, oh, no, you didn't. I approached Nina and her friends and said to the gaggle, hey, guys, can I talk to Nina alone for a second? After they filed out of the classroom into the hallway, I said calmly, Nina, did you take my Nature Valley granola bar? No, she said, as she ate my Nature Valley granola bar. Nina, <laughs> sweetie, I said, you, you have made a terrible mistake. Do I look like a person who does not keep track of his food? I am so good at keeping track of my food, scientists think I am part squirrel. That dumb dad joke broke the ice. It turns out Nina did, in fact, take my granola bar, but she had good reason. Nina, like many of my students, had a tough home life. Her dad had abandoned the family when Nina was just three when her younger sister was born. And is always the case when men abandon their responsibilities, it hurts some women and children, in this case, Nina's mom, Nina, and her sister. They got a one-bedroom apartment, her mom worked hard at multiple jobs, and they were hanging on by a thread. Nina's mom, in her own brokenness, met a guy. He was a smooth talker, was wealthy, and promised a lot of things. And so one week, Nina's mom just up and left with him to go to Las Vegas, with no notice, leaving Nina and her sister alone to fend for themselves. After about three days, their food in their apartment started running out. With very little in the fridge and the cupboards, 
Nina didn't know what to do. Her mom didn't leave her any money or a credit card. And so on day four, Nina went to the store and shoplifted food for her and her sister. Today was day five. Nina came to school without having any breakfast and saw my nature valley granola bar. And that's why Nina took my granola bar. Survival. Nina was Gavroche. I learned something important from Nina that day. Toxic environments can warp us. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're in a toxic environment long enough, it can begin to change the way you think about yourself, about what you think about reality, about the world. It can also change the way you behave. We all know people who have been involved in horribly dysfunctional relationships, and then they get out of those romantic relationships and realize, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. Perhaps they realize, oh, if I tell you the truth, you'll tell me the truth, and you won't punish me. And then we will develop this thing called trust. Imagine if you've never had that. I realized, along with some of my fellow teachers, that we had some work to do with Nina because after years in that environment, Nina had picked up and deeply internalized some really destructive messages about life, namely that adults cannot be trusted. Nina had been conditioned to believe that she was on her own. This was because the adults in her life, even the ones that she knew were the most morally and legally obligated to help her, had abandoned her. So Nina, being a survivor, developed a new mindset. It went like this. Nina, you got to fend for yourself because no one's coming to help you. You got to get your own. You can't rely on anyone. Again, toxic environments can warp us. The dramatic disappointments and pains of life are sometimes too much to take. And trauma can seep into our bones. So after talking with some experts about this, I realized I had some work to do too. And I had to be intentional about it. The next morning before class, I took Nina over to one of the filing cabinets in the room and I said to her, Nina, tomorrow morning when you come into my class, the bottom drawer of this filing cabinet will be emptied out. And inside will be a giant, big, Costco-sized box of Nature Valley granola bars. They're all yours. You can come and take as many as you want between any class or before or after school. It's yours. I might even throw in some Pop-Tarts, okay? Nina looked at me. The bell rang. The next morning, Nina came into my class, and do you know what was the first thing that she did? She checked the bottom drawer of that filing cabinet. She was checking, not for granola bars, but to see if I was telling the truth. A few days later, I pulled Nina aside and said, Tomorrow, Nina, when you come to school, I'm going to give you a card. It's from the school bank. It's going to allow you to get breakfast or lunch from the school cafeteria. And some teachers and I are going to load this card with enough money for you and your sister to have breakfast and lunch every single day from now until the end of the school year. Tomorrow, before class, I will give you that card. And the next day, Nina came in, and I gave that card to her. A few days later, after talking with my coworkers in the administration, we realized it would be good to try to have Nina talk to our school site psychologist, just to try to further help her. I pulled Nina aside and said, Nina, look, I don't know what it's like to be you right now, but I'm pretty sure it's not always easy. And sometimes, Nina, I found it's good to have someone that you trust that you can talk to. And Miss Rachel, our counselor, is good, Nina. She's safe. She knows you. She is for you. Her eyes narrowed. 
I'm not talking to anyone, she said, walling off coldly. I know this. You'll call CPS. They'll take me and my sister out, and my life will be worse than it was before. No thank you. Okay, okay, okay. How about this? I said. I'm going to put a post-it on your desk. Every single Monday, every single Wednesday, every single Friday. And at some point, I'm going to walk around the classroom. And I'd like you to write a number on that post-it note. That number represents how well you're doing. If it's an 8, 9, or 10, I know you're fine. It's a 5, 6, or 7, then things are just okay. But if it gets lower than that, I know you're having a tough time. And you have my full permission to just leave my class and go to the counseling office. You don't even have to talk to Miss Rachel. Just, just hang out there. Clear your head. Get some space. This post-it lets me know there's something going on that's bigger than school, okay? The next day was Wednesday. I put a post-it note on her desk. I did this every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday. And Nina typically wrote numbers in the five to eight range. But one day she looked at me. And as I walked by, I saw she'd written a three. I just nodded. She got her stuff and left quietly without any fanfare. Now, on the surface, it might have looked like myself and the other teachers were giving Nina some Nature Valley granola bars or a debit card for the school cafeteria or post-it notes. But we weren't. That's not what I was doing. Each time, I was giving Nina a chance to trust adults again. Nina had to heal from her toxic environments. And sometimes when we're in those toxic environments for a long time, we need to unlearn some things. And that can take a long time. Sometimes the more time we're in that toxic environment, the more entrenched those falsehoods become and the harder it is to unlearn them. And here's the thing I know for sure that Nina taught me. You can't unlearn those things by being told. Imagine I had simply tried to lecture Nina. Hey, Nina, your past trauma has resulted in deficient ideas about nurturing, resulting in a baseless and paranoid mistrust of all adults. There are adults out there, Nina, who you can rely on. What would Nina have said if I would have said that to her? Probably like shut up or something that rhymes with duck goo. No. To ever unlearn things like this, things this deep, things this painful, you can't be told. You have to be shown. You have to experience that lesson in person for yourself. To quote Dallas Willard or John Ortberg quoting Dallas Willard, the will is transformed by experience, not information. A story we can inhabit. In a way, we're all like Nina. Only instead of mistrusting adults, we mistrust God himself. Because the world is hard and harsh and bad things happen. And sometimes all the evidence seems that God's either abandoned us on this blue marble we call earth, or he just doesn't care enough to intervene. Either way, we're alone. Or God's left. Either way, no one's coming for us. C.S. Lewis insightfully wrote that, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In my own experience as a pastor now for almost two decades, nothing reaffirms and confirms this fear in the heart of people more than death. It's also my firm conviction that the death of a loved one is the most terrible suffering a person can experience. And the longer the relationship and the closer the relationship, the more devastating. If your favorite elementary school teacher dies, that's one thing. But your wife, your daughter, your son, 
The finality and cruelty of that kind of loss is what sends us into tailspins. C.S. Lewis is right. The ring of the pain of death is the sharpest, and it wakes all of us up. But for some, it's less like a smoke alarm and more like an air raid siren. The enemy is stalking. He's about to attack. And some people have come to believe that the enemy, the cruel villain plotting to steal, kill, and destroy, is God himself. I've watched this on the faces of people at funerals, their countenance hardening. If this is what God is like, then I want nothing to do with him. For some people, the distrust of the idea of a good God goes up in vapor as they stare at the staggering totality of their own pain. Like Nina, we have scars. We have a hard time trusting. Maybe we even want to trust. We want to believe. We do. We really do, down deep. But we're not sure our fragile selves could take one more big disappointment. God knows all things. And he knows this too. He is no fool. He knows what is being thought about him. We cannot be told things about God. Simple platitudes simply will not work. Like Nina, in order to trust, we need to be shown. Which leads us straight to Genesis 22. The Akedah. In Genesis 22, we reach the summit, both literarily and theologically, for the entire life of Abraham. The story is the climax of the narrative of Abraham. More than any other moment or chapter in his life, this story is the one that artists and poets will focus on most throughout history. This is, for better or worse, the story that will define Abraham's life. In reading books across all sorts of disciplines and viewpoints on the life of Abraham, there was at least one point that theologians from all three major world religions agreed upon. This moment, this episode, is the ultimate expression of religious devotion of Abraham's life. This moment is the most important. Scholars, rabbis, artists, teachers, poets, and readers have tried to make sense of this story for millennia. If the Bible were a mountain range, this story would be one of the five or six most important and oft told from the entirety of the Bible. It's also one of the most confusing and one of the most horrifying. Genesis 22 is such a singular story in the Bible it has a nickname. In Hebrew, Ha-Akedah, the Akedah. This word is taken from the Hebrew word that appears in Genesis 22.9, a word found nowhere else in the Bible in this form. The word Yaakad, Genesis 22.9, he bound Yaakad, his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar. The binding, it is called. The binding of Isaac. This is the moment when God appears to Abraham for the final time in his life. There are overt literary clues letting us know this story is meant to refer back to the opening story of Abraham from Genesis 12, forming bookends to his narrative. Much time has passed, but the author begins the final story the same way as the first story, deliberately using the same form. Genesis 12.1, leave your country, your people, and your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. Genesis 22, it says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to a mountain I will show you. In the first story, radical obedience is asked for by God. Abraham has learned in the resulting decades to practice the difficult art of ceding control over the direction of his life to God. Life with God and loving God means complete trust in him, even if you don't know what's next, and even when life does not seem to make sense. 
Abraham is teaching us that if we try to retain veto power over God on the direction and workings of our life, that's saying to God, no, actually, I do not actually trust you. We are invited by the story to be like Abraham and submit our whole lives and will to God. But in this final story, an even more radical obedience is asked by God. God appears to Abraham and others the unimaginable. Genesis 22. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. The language is tragically clear. It is not ambiguous. There is no hedging. The phrase, the burnt offering, sacrifice, this will mean Isaac's death. This is not empty ceremony. Isaac will die. And as if the content of the command from God himself is not cruel enough, four times God repeats who Abraham is to sacrifice. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. This is worse than death. In chapter 12, God asked Abraham to trust him, telling him to cut himself off from his land, his family, his people, his past. In chapter 22, God tells Abraham to cut himself off from his own future. We know what Isaac means to Abraham. After all these chapters, after all these years, Abraham finally has his son, his heir, the living proof that God keeps his promises. We know what Isaac means, not only to Abraham, but to the broader mission of God himself. Isaac is the sole bearer of the promise for the future. The end of Isaac would mean the end of hope, the end of blessing, the end of salvation for the whole world. This is the utter end of the line. And the path set before Abraham is not only one of child sacrifice, as unspeakable as that is. It is the road out into God-forsakenness. Abraham is asked to burn up the charter of salvation, leaving for himself nothing but death and hell. As pastor and author Fleming Rutledge writes, she writes, In the command that Abraham slaughter his own son, the promise of the salvation of the whole world that Abraham had followed so faithfully for so many decades seemed to be revealed as nothing more than a passing fancy of the deity. God had abandoned his promise and with consummate cruelty had ordered Abraham to destroy what he, God, had been playing around with all along, casting both father and son aside as though they were of no account, as though all those years of obedience and trust had been nothing but a ghastly celestial joke. End quote. In his book, Fear and Trembling, the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard says the net effect of the story is to produce horror. Just as Israel trembled in terror at the base of Mount Sinai, so do we. The illusion of our grandeur as humans is stripped away. There's another realm we are not in control. God is God. We are not, and we tremble because we know our fate is sealed without mercy. Is God cruel? Is he capricious? Is he arbitrary? Is he utterly undependable? You ever felt this way? about God? Abraham has too. The deafening silence. 
The narrative account is extraordinarily economical. The story is almost entirely devoid of words of emotion or words depicting emotion. We do not gain insight into Abraham's mindset. Throughout the entire story, he says less than 45 words. We are told nothing of the interior condition of Isaac either. And dear Sarah, the mother and wife, doesn't even appear in the story. She's wholly absent. There are so many unanswered questions here. No matter. The story moves on. The boy and his father walk toward the mountain. Perhaps the worst part is not that his son will die, but that Abraham must be an active participant. He must climb the long mountain with his son. He must bind him. He must raise the knife. Oh, the terrible knife. The glint of that small included detail catches our eye and our heart sinks. Genesis 22.3 Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Abraham will have to do this terrible thing. It's not enough for God to be told that Abraham loves him. He must be shown, and the story marches on as they do. Just a few chapters earlier, Abraham had stood on a hill overlooking the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and made a decision to fight and plead with God himself to spare the lives of unrighteous, of wicked people, most of whom he didn't even know. This is what I expect from Abraham now. I expect him to storm the gates of heaven with his pleas and protestations. I expect Abraham to litigate against God himself for no other reason than to spare the life of his son. But Abraham doesn't pray anything. He says nothing to God. We wait for a stay of execution from God. But there's no further revelation. There's only silence. The silence of God. The silent anguish of father and son. Do you know what that's like? Abraham does too. The height of the story. We imagine what they said to each other, the father and the son he adores. The narrator anticipates this and tells us. Genesis 22, 6. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. There is some debate about how old Isaac is in this scenario. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Isaac was 25 while the Talmud proposes 33, the same age of Jesus, when he died. Other theologians have posited that Isaac was still young, a balancing age where he's old enough and strong enough to carry the wood, but still young enough to be compliant. However old he was, we wonder if he was suspicious. His father's vague answer surely didn't help. God himself will provide the lamb? What does that mean? But we are not told anything. Isaac carries the wood, carefully chopped by his father, who did not know if the place they were going would have such supplies. The two of them went on together. And then the story slows. In the words of one commentator, it slows to an excruciating crawl. 
Abraham builds the altar, slowly stacks the stones, one after the other. Then he arranges the wood. Like a man digging his own grave before his own execution, the details are laborious and terrible. An eternity of time passes in those terrible moments of preparation before Abraham must raise the knife. As one Jewish commentator wrote, once again, not a word escapes the father's lips. Isaac, too, is speechless. The intensity of the anguish is beyond the ability of words to express. We read on frantically. Genesis 22.9 When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel appears. One of only two times in the entire Bible that an angel calls from heaven to a human being. The voice rings out, Abraham, Abraham. The angel calls out Abraham's name twice. This not only communicates divine urgency, but also indicates the special relationship that God has with Abraham. The angel speaks the very words of God, the very words of life for both Isaac and Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. As readers, we, we exhale, we breathe. But there's no shout of joy from Abraham or Isaac, perhaps only relief. Abraham looks up and spots a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. He takes the animal and sacrifices it to God. Jewish commentators proclaim that this scenario, a ram caught in a thicket, would have been an incredibly and exceedingly rare occurrence. Ram's horns are located on the back of their heads, and they're used solely for bucking, not when the animal is eating the vegetation of a bush. These animals are also quite agile and aware of their surroundings. The chances of one getting its horn stuck in a thicket while eating is just unlikely. We're meant to see this as an act of God. Abraham's words to Isaac have come to pass. God has provided. Isaac is saved. And so is Abraham, really. Our emotions flood us. Relief. Relief. The testing of Abraham. In the aftermath of the Abraham story, we are left to wonder, what does this even mean? It's fascinating. In the dozens of commentaries and books I read about this event, authors and theologians are split as to what they think the main emphasis of the story is. Is the main point of the story about Abraham and what the story shows about him? Or is the point of the story about what the story shows us about God? Okay. Let's start with what this story shows us about Abraham, about what it means to live life with God. Sometimes this event is called the testing of Abraham. Throughout the Bible, we see two types of testing. The first type of test is when God tests people. Sometimes God puts his people to the test, not to trap them, but to give them a chance to demonstrate their trust and loyalty. And then there's a second type of test, when people test God. Sometimes people put God to the test, almost always because of a lack of trust, and they demand that God prove himself. This story is a clear example of the first type of test. 
The story even tells us in the opening line, Genesis 22, 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. That's what it says. This is the first time the word test appears in the Hebrew Bible. It's the Hebrew word nasa. As a parent of two teenagers in school, I can tell you their perception of the word test is nearly exclusively bad. But not all tests are bad. Some tests are opportunities. Sometimes at work, those in leadership intentionally assign tasks to their workers that stretch them. In those tests, they see proficiencies, capabilities, limitations. We are proven by these tests. For example, former six-round draft pick University of Michigan grad Tom Brady is often regarded as the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL because of the situations he's been in where he has come through again and again and again. My wife made me write that sentence because she went to the University of Michigan with Tom Brady. I do not like Tom Brady. Anyway, the point is, tests can show what we're made of. Back in the Garden of Eden, God's plan was to rule the earth with his selim, his faithful, loving covenant partners. But after sin entered, humans spiraled away from God. As we've already examined with Noah in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are times when it's very difficult for God to find faithful covenant partners. In the beginning, even though the word test wasn't explicitly used, we see God putting forth a test to Adam and Eve, asking them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, trusting him to define good and evil. Later, the serpent introduces another test, urging them to throw off God's rule and trust themselves. Instead, two tests. And in the process, we see if Adam and Eve are faithful covenant partners. They are not. But the idea of a crucible, a test, appears over and over again, not only in the Bible, but in literature and in art. These tests, these charged moments of real decision, reveal the content of the protagonist's true character, illuminating their virtue. It's that moment in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn where Huck decides not to abandon Jim, who has been captured by slave traders, but to risk his own life and the condemnation of all society to rescue this man who has been devoted to him like a true father. Now, as readers, we know who Huck really is. The test has revealed it. It's that moment in The Color Purple when Celie finally stands up to her abusive husband, Albert. Though filled with murderous rage, instead of killing Albert, she chooses life. After a traumatic life of denigration, denial, and subservience at the hands of both white and black men, Celie's courage soars, and she decides to seek her own wholeness, her own prosperity, her own freedom. We now know, as readers, who Celie really is. The test has revealed it. The same is true for us with Abraham. We now know who Abraham really is. The test has revealed it. As one commentator wrote, It is not that God's foreknowledge is wanting, but that for Abraham's sake, the quality of character that now exists only potentially must be actualized. In the biblical view, the genuinely righteous man must deserve that status through demonstrated action. Henceforth, Abraham is the incontestable paradigm for the truly God-fearing man, one who is wholehearted in his self-determined, disinterested, self-surrender to God's will. God, and we as the reader, have seen who Abraham is. We have been shown what trust and loyalty and allegiance to God through the most vexing of all of life's experiences look like. Abraham has been stretched to the brink of human experiences, and he has been faithful to God. We have been shown what loving God looks like in the most difficult and impossible of all situations. 
Perhaps this event, suggests Fleming Rutledge, may be understood as encompassing all the incomprehensible silences of God from that day forward. It is tradition, even now, that the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, is blown on the highest of Jewish holy days, Yom Kippur. There are many reasons why this is done, why the echoing, raw, stuttering, bellowing sound is used in times of worship. Some scholars trace it back to Moses' call to gather people at the base of Mount Sinai. This is indeed the first mention, the first time the blowing of a ram's horn is mentioned in the Bible, but others think it actually goes deeper than that. For many Jewish scholars, they go back to the first time, not that the term ram's horn appears in the Torah, but the first time the word ram appears, which is right here in Genesis 22. For them, the blowing of the horn is a reminder of the ram. It's a reminder of the akedah. As one Jewish scholar, Binyamin Cohen put it, if you want to go to court, you take a good lawyer. The shofar is like a good lawyer. It reminds God of Abraham's obedience and being willing to sacrifice that which was more dear to him than life itself. When you hear the shofar, recall the akedah and account it to your credit as if you bound yourself to the altar before God. For many people, the story of the Akedah is the story of ultimate allegiance to God, unwavering trust, and conviction that God is good. It's the story of Abraham modeling what it means to be a Selim. But I want to focus on this question. How in the world did Abraham manage to survive this ordeal intact as a faithful covenant partner with God? I think the text gives us three very small hints. First, Abraham tells his entourage of servants that we, quote, will worship and then come back to you. The text is careful to include that the return will be both Abraham and Isaac. Abraham somehow believes that God will not violate his precious promise to give Abraham descendants. Second, Abraham says, quote, God himself will provide the sacrifice. Now, we're unclear what that means, but it seems to be a glimmer of trust and hope that perhaps things won't transpire according to Abraham's worst fears. And then, later on in the Bible, there's this passage found in the New Testament, an author of Hebrews who's commenting on this event. And the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 11, verse 17. Listen, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer continued saying, quote, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. And Jesus, if you'll recall, said to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Abraham is modeling the discipline of focusing one's mind on the truths of God that we know and trust. Abraham is modeling the discipline of remembering God's character, which is good, that he is with us. He is for us. He does not change. Because of God's faithfulness in the past, Abraham expected God to be faithful in the future. And friends, we have a lot more information about God than Abraham did. 
we have a lot longer track record to judge God's faithfulness than Abraham did. When he was a young boy, my son Justice, who has a very active imagination, would frequently have bad dreams. So at night, when we put him to bed, my wife and I would sing a song whose verses were the same as Paul's words in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Think about. Think about, think about such things. This was his bedtime song for years. The first words in those verses, think about what's true and noble and right, are words that Paul uses in other letters to refer to theology. Paul is saying something rather deep. He's saying, really stop and think about the giant, huge, universal perspective. Think about who God is. Think about why you're here. Think about what God thinks about you. Think about that kind of stuff. This is the same point, I think, that A.W. Tozer is trying to make. There are deep lies, we tell ourselves, that show our lack of accurate thinking about God. These lies creep in, especially during tragic times. Lies like, God is punishing me. God does not care about me. God is not here. I can't change. Psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi explains this tendency in his book, Flow. He writes, when left to itself, the mind turns to bad thoughts, trivial plans, sad memories, and worries about the future. Disorder, confusion, and decay are the default option of consciousness. Okay, that's incredible. Abraham is showing us how to take our overwhelming emotions and our overwhelming thoughts and take them captive to the truth about what we know about God, about what he's already proven and shown us to be true. Throughout the centuries, teachers and poets have offered their midrash, their commentary, their conjecture about what Abraham may or may not have been thinking. It's confusing to wade through all of it. But here, centuries later in the New Testament, we have a plain and clear illumination from a writer of scripture. Abraham reasoned that just as God brought life from a place where there was no hope or possibility of life, his wife's Sarah's empty, barren womb, so he will do it again. He is, after all, Abraham reasoned, the God of life. And here in Genesis 22, we find the seeds of an idea of a son killed but resurrected somehow by the very power of God. This is incredible. Abraham believed God would come through, and he did. One of the major hints about the theological meaning of the story is the repetition. Three times in the story, the idea of God providing crops up. First, in the conversation between father and son, Genesis 22, 7, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then later, in the dramatic conclusion after Isaac's life has been spared, Abraham memorializes this moment in Genesis 22:14. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That phrase, quote, the Lord will provide, is the Hebrew term Yahweh Chiare. And it is not only used multiple times in the story of Genesis 22, but it is the core lesson and principle of this narrative. 
and perhaps the core lesson of Abraham's life and a core instruction for anyone who reads or hears the story. Abraham foreshadows this early in the story, saying God himself will provide the lamb. And this is where Christian theologians and thinkers say the story jumps from being about Abraham to actually being about God himself. In this story, Abraham learns, and the people of Israel recently released from bondage learn, that this God is a God who does not take, but rather give. In an ancient world full of deities with frail egos, demanding costly sacrifice after costly sacrifice, this idea is revolutionary. God does not take from Abraham, but instead shows him. When it comes to humanity, God will be the one who gives first. And God does not just tell Abraham this truth. He shows him. In a way, the Akedah is not only a test of Abraham's character, but also of God's. And God reveals himself to be good and be the first one to give. God is a God who provides. Abraham uses this phrase, Yahweh Yireh, to memorialize this place on Mount Moriah. As such, the phrase, the Lord will provide, becomes not only a name for God, a core part of his identity, but the name of the actual mountain where this dramatic scene unfolded. Loving God means we expect God to be good. We anticipate, await, and believe God will provide. But the shocking implication this story points to is beyond the fact that God provides and reaches further into how God provides. But that deserves the whole next chapter.